Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My first guest this week is Kamasi Washington. He and I talked in 2018. Kamasi plays the saxophone and also does production work. He's collaborated with Thundercat, St. Vincent, Flying Lotus, Robert Glasper. That's just a few. On Kendrick Lamar's now classic album, To Pimp a Butterfly, you can hear his saxophone and arranging work as well. Do you believe in me? Are you deceiving me? Could I let you down easily? Is your heart where it need to be? Is your smile on permanent? But to define Kamasi Washington by the people he's collaborated with is to do him a disservice. He's a dynamic, thrilling composer and band leader. Between 2005 and now, he's recorded about half a dozen solo records, and they are brilliant. If you fell in love with the work of Alice Coltrane or Pharaoh Sanders, you'll hear something familiar in Kamasi's music. Like them, Kamasi writes songs from a transcendent, almost spiritual place. It's strange and lush, hypnotizing melodies. The songs run long. But just like the free jazz greats before him, you end up losing yourself. But Washington isn't a product of the late 60s. He grew up in the 80s. He was raised here in Los Angeles, where we make Bullseye. And he grew up listening to jazz music, but also N.W.A. and Marvin Gaye and Snoop Dogg. So the music he makes is eclectic, but effortlessly so. It's why his albums have ended up on so many critics' top ten lists. And it's also why those same critics have written thousands of words asking the same question— Can Kamasi Washington make jazz a young person's game again? It's a weird position to be in, to be called the savior of a kind of music that you live and breathe. He doesn't think about it much. Instead, he keeps putting out new records, working on new collaborations. He's getting back to playing live music, too. Just last month, he did a jaw-dropping performance at the Hollywood Bowl with Earl Sweatshirt. He's got more on the horizon. His most recent record is called Heaven and Earth. Let's listen to a track from it. This is Street Fighter Moss. Tomasi Washington, welcome to Bullseye. I'm so happy to have you on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Is that really a song that you wrote for yourself to be your own theme music when you're playing Street Fighter? <laughs> yeah, when I walk into the arcade, they should play that and strike fear and all the all the nerds. <laughs> I mean, if you at this point in your career, you could you could probably afford to have a guy roll with you, and if you just have that guy, can carry a tape deck. Yeah, with a, with a boombox. Yeah. <laughs> um, fighting games are interesting to me because. The amount of focus it takes to execute the often really complicated it's things like that are required. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> what made me think of it. Like it is kind of weirdly like learning an instrument. You have to practice, and you have to like stay on it too. Like if you stop playing for a little while, it can, you kind of you lose your stuff. It's intense. It's intense, and like it's um, 
it's one of those, it's very addictive. So I always warn people, like, it's fun. But if you are, if you have a competitive spirit kind of in it, like if you, if you're able to take things that aren't that serious and and be serious about them, <laughs> which is, you know, I think that's like the, the personality type that gets in the fighting games. Like, cause it's not really a serious thing, but like it will ruin your day. <laughs> <laughs> like someone, like you get a bad beat, like a, like a bad loss and it would like affect you. Like you'd be like, you'd be sitting there eating dinner hours later. You're like. I knew it. I knew. I, I knew. <laughs> I just knew he was going to jump. <laughs> That's why I did the dragon punch because he was going to jump. I knew. I, I feel like he did jump. <laughs> you know. I think in the video you're playing regular Street Fighter too, like on an arcade console. Is that yeah. your Street Fighter? Because there's a bunch of them. I play most of the Street Fighters from Street Fighter Two up until now. I, I, right now, I'm playing Street Fighter Five. Do you have a favorite character in Street Fighter to play? Um, Ryu has definitely been my like classic character throughout all the different games, like you know, since Street Fighter Two. Um, I like the stretchy arms guy. That's my favorite. Oh, guy. Dawson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I use. I mean, in Street Fighter Five. I use. I use Blanca as well, and I use Kyle. Ryu got a, a little bit nerfed in this game, but I still use Ryu. I think he's still a good character. Um, I use a character called Falk as well. Have you ever been to one of these tournaments where somebody like rents a warehouse and people drive up trucks full of? of Street Fighter 2 consoles and, like, load them into the warehouse? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, I've been to Evo a few times. And, you know, for a minute, I mean, I have a few friends that are, like, professional Street Fighter players. So I would go to, like, bar fights, just like a like a fighting game tournament at a bar. Um, I've been to quite a few tournaments. I mean, like I said, if, if you're able to, to, to get beyond the fact that, like, we are taking this much too seriously, <laughs> you know, and just embrace it. Embrace it and be more serious about this and talk about it <laughs> in more detail than you probably should. And talk about frame data and, and you know, and all of those other things that we get into. It's fun. You know, I read an interview with your dad, who is also a musician, where he described that you were capable, even as a kid, of sitting down and playing piano for hours. You were the person in your family or in your generation of the family who, when you sat down at the piano, you stayed at the piano. That's a little bit like that kind of focus that you need to to play Street Fighter for hours. <laughs> yeah, I definitely have an addictive personality. So, like, um, um, and I have, like, a, a long attention span. So, like, I don't get bored easily. You know, I can do... Anything that I'm enjoying doing, I can do it for a long time, you know. So, yeah, I mean, I, I remember being a kid. I mean, I could, I could, uh, you know, I could, I could sit around and like, I could also just sit around and daydream for a long time and just literally like stare out the window and have a whole little scene and movie play out in my head. I don't know. It's just, it's part of you know. And so when I when I really got into music, it definitely was a benefit. Because it was like, you know, where it was like some kids had a hard time practicing. It was like once I started practicing, I had a hard time stopping. You know, it was like once I got going, I didn't want to stop. I, I imagine that it was your father who first put an instrument in your hand. Is that true? Yeah, yeah. Did you like it? I mean, were you too young to know the difference between liking it and not liking it? Yeah, I mean, my first instrument was drums, and I was probably like three. So I don't really—I mean, I remember getting the drum set, 
because I got it for my birthday. And then, um, but it's hard for me to remember not having it. You know what I mean? I remember getting it, but trying to remember life before it, before music, it's kind of hard for me to, you know, it's, it's super fuzzy. Did you always want to do it in a serious way or was there a period? I mean, like, there were things my dad wanted me to do. I did not do any of them. <laughs> no, I wasn't. I wasn't really serious about it at first. You know, I had, I had an older brother that was really kind of like a child prodigy, so it was kind of his thing. You know, but I, I, I always liked music, but I wasn't like serious about it. You know, um, so you know, I didn't get really get serious about music until I started playing saxophone. You know, before that, you know, I liked music. I liked playing it. You know, I liked playing the instruments. It was fun. And I did it very much recreationally, you know. I'm, I remember in school, like, everybody had the recorders, and I had a clarinet, and that, and that was just really, really cool because, you know, it was so much cooler than the recorder. Probably the coolest a clarinet has ever been is when I brought my clarinet to school for music day and everybody else had recorders. I was about to say, I think this is the first time since, like, 1967 that someone has announced <laughs> how cool their clarinet is. Oh, it was the coolest thing to all the other kids. You know, if you don't have an instrument, and, and I, you know, because my, my, dad, my dad had been giving me lessons, so, like, I could I could play. Like, I could play. I, I remember I, I, knew all, I knew a lot of the boys to men songs <laughs> on the clarinet, and, like, I knew some Jodeci songs, and I could play, like, some of the hooks from, like, N.W.A. I just knew radio songs on the clarinet and it was a clarinet it was like wood and it, i could play in any key and the recorder was like limited it was it was very much like it was like an electric guitar compared to those recorders you know it was it was, it was pretty rock star did you have a signature tune i mean was it like wait until you hear my lay your head on my pillow <laughs> what was it no 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 it wasn't lay your head on your pillow it was um if i ever fall in love I'm not going to sing it right now because, you know, evidence of me singing that song is not <laughs> necessarily, not necessarily move. But, yeah, that was like the song, yeah. What happened when you started playing saxophone when you were 12? Well, a few, like a year and a half, two years before that, I got into jazz. and When you were like 10? 10 or 11, around in there somewhere. I think that might be unusual even in a household where your dad is a professional jazz musician. <laughs> well, it was in, I, mean, I mean, my dad had been trying to get me into jazz. It felt late to him. You know, he, he was like showing me ascensions and ohm and stuff like that when I was like five. So if I, I was sure to him, it was like, it felt like, finally, jeez, you know. But uh, when I got into jazz, you know, I was really into Art Blakey and Jazz Messengers and Wayne Shorter and, and you know, I got into like Charlie Parker. I really liked the saxophone. And my dad, since I had been playing clarinet the whole time, he kept telling me that the clarinet and the saxophone were the same thing. And so I was trying to learn those songs on clarinet. And it was like, first off, they were just hard like to do because they're not exactly the same. And it just didn't sound the same. And I was just like, man, it just does just, just not sound the same. He was like, no, nah, it's because you haven't practiced. 
And I remember like getting the saxophone. Uh, he had a saxophone out one day, and I just picked it up and, and I figured out how to play this song that I've been playing on clarinet. And all of a sudden, it sounded like—I mean, I'm sure it didn't sound exactly like it—but <laughs> it sounded like the records I've been listening to. And it was like, before that, you know, I, I admired great musicians and I liked good music. You know, I never thought that I could make music like the music that I liked because I was—I hadn't found my voice. And it was like when I found the saxophone, like it was almost immediate, like it was like I could see it. It was like all of a sudden, like, oh, we're there, right there. That's where you will be able to make music that you like, like like the music that you enjoy. And I was like, oh, wow, I could do that? Like I could make a song that make me feel the way I feel when I hear this Art Blakey record? I could do that? Like, oh, wow. And then I was just hooked, you know, all that addictive personality, like 97% of it went <laughs> right into the saxophone and music, Yeah. What were you excited about, about like Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers when you were 12 or 11? It was the feel. I don't know, it had, it had this kind of like hard, like kind of <clears throat> exciting feel to it that just resonated with me, you know. And there, you know, there was that there was that tribe called Quest song that had the, the Art Blakey sample on it. My cousin gave me this tape that had all these Art Blakey songs, and that was one of them. That does feel like a secret when you hear that. Yeah, you're like, what's that? This is, you know, and then the rest of the song comes in, and you're like, oh wow, you know, I didn't even know. I don't think I was really fully aware that 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 hip hop was sampling. <laughs> At that point, I don't, I don't know if I was really fully aware of what that meant, you know? I mean, I remember how much it blew my mind when I heard People Every Day by Arrested Development. Oh, yeah. And I was like, oh, I know that song. That's a, that's that Sly and the Family Stone song my mom loves. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was definitely like that. And then, you know, it made it cool. You know, it instantly made it cool. I mean, it, 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 took, it, it, like, it took it away from my dad. And it gave it to me, you know? And so, like, I didn't. I, I no longer looked at it like it was his. It was mine. His whole record collection was no longer his. It was mine. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? I started, like, you know, I moved the records. And, you know, it was, like, you know, it was kind of funny. Like, they were literally, like, in a different place. And, I, like, I took them outside to where I used to practice and stuff. And I took the whole record player. And, you know, he came out in a panic. Like, somebody stole the record player. I'm like, no, no, I just moved it. <laughs> when you were a kid did you think your dad's music career was cool my older brother may remember it a little better than me i was pretty young when my dad made a decision not to go not to tour anymore um he was a public school teacher yeah yeah he wanted to stay home he didn't want to be out on the road he wanted to especially when my parents divorced so that was when i was about three i used to always want my dad to go out and play more but especially by the time that I was playing music, um, I always knew he was talented, and I, you know, I, I just, I was such a like, uh, I was a pretty adventurous kid. So like, by the time I was thirteen, fourteen, I was out in the streets, <laughs> you know, playing in jam sessions, doing gigs and stuff. And my dad had kind of like, at that point, by that point, he had been teaching so long and kind of like removed himself from the scene so much that he wasn't playing that much, you know? And so I used to really want him to go out and, like, play. And he was like, I got to go to work in the morning, you know? Was like, you can, you, can, you can sleep through class, but I can't, you know? <laughs> and uh, I was appreciative of the fact that he did 
make that sacrifice. But I used to always wish that he would get out and play more. So it was, it's been cool for me, like, you know, having him out on the road with us, you know, because it's kind of like, now he is, you know. Was it difficult for you to have uh, this thing that you were really passionate about that your dad was a professional of? No, nah, because like I said before, I mean, he wasn't, he wasn't really out. Like, I was out much more. I remember I had, we had a moment actually once where, like, I was really active when I was a kid. You know, I was like, um, I don't even know how I did all the stuff I was doing. Um, and I ended up having a gig with one of my dad's friends. And so my dad's friend calls the house. And this is like before anyone had cell phones. So he calls the house. My dad answers. And they're just kind of chopping it up. And he's like, yeah, so um, is Kamasi there? <laughs> and he's like, uh, yeah, yeah, he's here. He's like, oh, can I talk to him real quick? And he sees me, like, get the phone. And I'm, like, writing down the information for the gig. And he was like, did you just steal my gig, Kamasi? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, you gig with, you, you played with him, too? I was like, oh, I didn't even, you know. <laughs> I didn't even know, you know. So I mean, like he was, he was pretty good about giving me my space musically. You know, he wasn't really like at every gig. I mean, he'd come to the gigs that I, he thought that I, that I felt like were important for me to be, him to be at. But like, you know, I mean, I mean, a lot of times I had to figure out how to get there and get home. Like it wasn't. I mean, I benefited from the fact of having I have like six brothers and sisters, so it wasn't like all eyes on me. And I was like. I probably had the least problems of all my siblings, you know? So it was like my parents kind of looked at me like, Kamasi's kind of all right. I don't know, dude. <laughs> what am I going to do with this dude right here, you know? Um, so, you know, it, I kind of had both, you know? Like, if I needed some help with music, I could always go ask my dad, like, you know? But even, like, it was weird because it was like I had other friends that had, like, private lessons, and it was like a really like regimented thing. Like on Tuesdays and Thursdays, I go to this guy and he tells me what to do. My dad didn't really tell me what to do. You know, he just like, here's a whole stack of books, music books that have everything you need to know about music. Here's a whole big old record collection. Here's any instrument you really want to play. Have at it, you know? And it's just like anything I, that I didn't understand, like, hey, I don't understand what a you know half diminished, half diminished and a fully diminished. This is the difference between half diminished and fully diminished. Oh, okay. You know, what's a sharp eleven mean? This is what that means. You know, so it was kind of like a, it was like a, a very, it felt like a very natural relationship with it. You know, so I didn't have that sense of someone driving me. You know, your adolescence was in the early and mid nineties. Um, and you grew up in South LA. Did you have to make a choice at some point in your life that you are going to be the kind of guy that plays music and plays video games and not have a uh, street life? Yeah, uh, it happened pretty early for me. Um, and I don't think people realize that sometimes, like that identity that like you're a gangster when you grow up in that neighborhood, it attaches itself to you really young. Way young, way before you ever do anything that a gangster would do. I was fortunate, and, and it was weird because I had two great parents, college-educated parents, and, like, I had no real reason to fall into that, you know, other than just my self-image from the outside was pushing me into something that I didn't really have on the inside. 
And um, I had these guys that came to my school, and they and they really taught us um, about the true nature of our history and where we come from and who we are and, like, what my true potential is. And, and kind of just showed me, you know, you think you want to be this, but this is what this really is. Do you want to be that or do you want to be this? And, like, when you give someone that choice, it, it kind of immediately shifts you. And at, at right around that same time, I found music. And music, like, when I found my love for music, it's like, it really is like falling in love with a person, you know? It's like, you don't want to do, you know, I don't even want to do anything else, you know? So it was like, it wasn't a hard decision, like, oh, man, I really want to be in the streets, but I should be a good person. And it was like... All I really want to do, I wake up in the morning thinking about this music. I wake up, I go, you know, I go to sleep thinking about it. And I'm thinking about it all day long. Like, I'm so preoccupied with this. I can't even really, like, what do you want to go to? You want to go spray paint up some walls? <laughs> like, ah, no, I'm good, man. Like, you know, I'm going to fight somebody. Ah, no, I'm cool, man. <laughs> you know, it's, it, it, it encompassed me. And it was so, I, I was, I was fortunate in that sense that it, it caught me right at that crossroads where a lot of kids get kind of swept into something that they really have had no real intention of being in, you know? Like, cause you're so young that you don't really even understand what you're getting yourself into until it's too late. And now you're 16, 17, and the world is looking at you like you're an adult and you're into this thing that you didn't know what you were getting into, you know? And so, like, fortunately for me, when I was, like, 10 or 11, Someone came along and swept me out of it. At the same time, I found something that gave me another identity for myself. So it was, it was not a hard thing for me to do. You were playing in a jazz band, like playing shows, when you were a teenager. Um, did you always imagine a career in jazz? Jazz was definitely the first music that was my first love in music. But... Pretty early on, I was always playing like like literally like the day that I switched to the saxophone. Like my dad was like, "All right, this weekend we're gonna go play at your uncle's church." <laughs> so like I immediately, I mean, it was it was because of jazz, but I immediately added gospel to the story, you know. And I already had hip hop kind of was like the soundtrack of my my generation, my friends, everybody was into that. And then um, so I started. Playing saxophone in eighth grade, and then uh, when I went to ninth grade, I, I switched schools to like a, I went to Hamilton, which is like a music academy, and so all of a sudden I'm meeting these classical musicians who are like really into classical music, and then I developed a love of classical music. So I don't think that I don't think I was thinking about a career in that sense. I just really liked music. I just wanted to really make really good music, and jazz was probably the fav- my favorite of all the music that I was making. Even more with Kamasi Washington. Stay with us. When we come back from a break, we'll talk about one of his first paying gigs, playing in the band of one Snoop Doggy Dog. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for Bullseye and the following message come from Culturel. Culturel wants you to know that an estimated 45 million Americans may have IBS, according to the International Foundation for Gastrointestinal Disorders. Culturel IBS Complete Support is a medical food for the dietary management of IBS. It's designed to relieve symptoms like abdominal pain, bloating, diarrhea, and constipation in a safe, well-tolerated, once-daily dose. Save 20% with promo code RADIO on culturel.com. 
Hey, it's Peter Sagal, host of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. After a year and a half of broadcasting from our bedrooms, we are returning to shows with real live audiences starting August 5th in Philadelphia. Don't worry, we will still have our beds on stage with us. Join us. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Kamasi Washington, is a saxophonist and composer. He's collaborated with Kendrick Lamar, Run the Jewels, Flying Lotus, and many others. When we talked in 2018, he had just released the album Heaven and Earth. This track we're hearing right now is from that album. It's called The Psalmist. One of your first real jobs as a musician was playing in Snoop Dogg's band. When you got that call, that must have been a mind blower. Oh, yeah. Snoop Dogg is Snoop Dogg. No matter, I mean, you could be anyone in America, Snoop Dogg is Snoop Dogg. Oh, yeah. Much less to be be a guy from L.A. Oh, yeah. And from South Central L.A., it was like, it was pretty, like, surreal. It was one of those moments where you're like, you definitely, I definitely didn't expect it, you know. I mean, I, I've been gigging around the city a lot, you know, as a kid. Um, and Terrace, before that, Terrace had, he did a tour with uh, uh, Kirk Franklin. It's a gospel um, superstar. And Ter- Terrace Martin, we should say, is is both a pretty accomplished jazz musician and a very accomplished hip-hop producer as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, he was he was definitely, like, ahead of his... He was, he was ahead of the pack in a lot of ways. You know, just, like... I remember, I remember, like, when we were kids, he was... He had his own band, like, before us, and it was like, oh, man. Like, that. he was, like, always kind of pushing forward, you know? And so he was the first one of us that, like, got, like, an MPC and started, like, producing and, like making tracks and like, making the music for hip-hop. Like, we we all listened to it, but I, I hadn't really thought of, like, trying to play hip-hop music, you know? It was like, it existed in a different platform for me. It was like, oh, if I'm going to a party, you know, I'm going mean, to ride around in my car, you know, someone's car, you listen to it, but he was, like, making that music, you know? And I remember he, um, I remember he met Battle Cat. He's a legendary West Coast hip-hop producer who worked extensively with Snoop Dogg. Yeah, and I uh, I remember hearing about that. And he was, you know, sort of like, that was a big deal. We were like, dang, working with Battle Cat, that's dope. Yeah, and then when he called us, he was like, man, Snoop. Because first it wasn't a tour, it was just one gig. He was like, Snoop is doing The Tonight Show, and he wants a horn section. And it was like, oh, snap. And so he went and did it. And I remember Snoop, walking off the set and it's like I'm taking the band on tour with me and we all looked at each other like I hope that means us as well because <laughs> you know the horns are the first ones to get fired <laughs> when the budget gets low we get nervous <laughs> and so yeah and, and and he did He you know he took us all on the road and it was I remember like first time you know Snoop said hey what's up Kamasi and I was like dang Snoop knows my name that's crazy you know, and then like you know, playing Madden, and you know, just hanging out. It was like, wow, this is kind of this is, you know, someone that I looked up to so much and I listened to and idolized when I was a kid. You know, especially like before I started, I played saxophone. I was really, really into like Snoop and Dre. That was like it for me. You know, you must have learned a lot about creating the 
aesthetics of hip-hop when you were playing in a hip-hop band. You can really tell the difference between a band that gets what hip-hop is and a band that is just a perfectly good band. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it was it was a big learning experience for me because, like I said, before, I, it was the music that I listened to, but I never really tried to play. And I never really investigated, like, what... What are hip hop? What's a hip hop musician? What does that mean? Like, what does it mean to play, to play this music live? You know, because it was such a my my association was with a DJ, hip hop with a DJ it wasn't like I didn't associate it with a live band like that. Um, even though you know, coming to find out that a lot of that stuff was live musicians replaying stuff, playing over stuff. You yeah, know. Dr. Dre had kind of pioneered the art of bringing in session musicians to replay a record so that he only had to license the the rights to the song and not the rights to the recording yeah, yeah. in order to use use a sample in a song. Yeah, yeah. And so um when we get to that when I when I you know, we get to the first rehearsal um it was one of those things where it was like I had been studying music so much and so much technically difficult music that I thought that I was going to be fine. And, and then all of a sudden you get you get there and it's like their perspective on on what it means to play something right is completely different. It's like it's 50-50 what notes you're playing and the other 50% is how you play it. Like, like literally like you could play the right notes and they would look at you like, and I'm like, but you you told me to play. I mean, one of the things about hip hop beat making is guys who do that and women who do that are obsessed with the qualities of sounds. Yeah. So, like, they're interested, depending on who it is, they may or may not be interested in the kind of traditional musical stuff. Um, you know, sometimes they're well versed in it, sometimes less so. But the the quality of you know you could get three hip hop producers in a room and they could gl- they would gladly argue for five hours about a single snare sound yeah exactly like, with no problem yeah whereas in most bands it's like oh yeah as long as there's a, a, a hi hat on the eighth note or whatever it is yeah then you're doing it right exactly like you're a drummer and if your snare drum is not tuned right they look at you like you're dropping the beat. Or if you're a bass player and, and, and your bass is not super fat and like, you know, like these things are like not mildly important, but like majorly important. And so at the horn section, it was like, like the phrasing and your tone quality and like the feel of how you play what they wanted you to play was super important, you know. And, and so it made me kind of think about music, music differently, you know. And then you had people like, you know, everyone in that band pretty much was a producer. And so all of a sudden, um, the conversations that you're around, like like that, like sounds, you know, um, records and like understanding the importance of a feel, you know, how something feels. I had that subconsciously, but I wasn't consciously ever thinking of it. And all of a sudden I'm in this scenario where like I have to be very conscious of it. Like, what is this feel? Like, where should we place these three notes that they want us to play that carried over actually to the how I play jazz. It was like all of a sudden now I'm playing a hundred notes, but I still feel the need to put that same care 
that I put on the three notes over these hundred notes, you know? And that's where I started to then hear, like, the jazz musicians that I really love. Like, oh, they're doing that. It, it doesn't matter how complicated it is. They never lost sight of this other side of the music, you know? And I really learned that from playing with Snoop. I'm not a musician, but it seems like it would also be uh, a different kind of listening when you're playing, particularly because in jazz music, especially when you're playing relatively casually, one of the things that's happening often is that there's a uh, there's a soloist and there's a band supporting the soloist and the soloist is doing their thing and often improvisatorily. improvisatorily yeah <laughs> oh, what a word um improvisatorily and in hip hop uh you know, your fealty is towards creating a very sharp, very coherent beat because it's got to move people in a very specific way. Yeah. And your soloist is always, I mean, maybe you guys got a solo in the Snoop show, but basically the soloist is always going to be the MC. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's, that, and, it's, and it's also you're playing records. I mean, with Snoop, you're playing hits. So you're playing records that people love and they know and, like, it's <clears throat> a different mentality you have to have of, like, you have to really... Because jazz is so much about self-expression, so much about um, showing who you are. And this scenario is about creating the sound, you know? It's not about you, you know? And, like, and that... Um, that's an important switch to kind of be able to like have to like, okay, I'm going to, yeah, I could play a lot of stuff, but that's not what this needs. And to kind of really just take you out of the equation and really put above everything this, like you said, this, this, this thing that is being created by all of us at the same time, this, and Snoop was a part of that. You know, he was the face of it, but he was still a part of it. It was like, it's very much like all these things have to line up and link up perfectly together to make it feel that way that's going to make everyone feel that way, you know? And so it was, um, it's just as difficult in its own way, even though you're only playing three notes. Your three notes have to fit perfectly and this thing that has the bass player, the drums, a DJ, a rapper, keyboards, guitars, everything has to fit in exactly perfectly. And you can't fit in exactly perfectly just by playing the right notes. Even more still to come with Kamasi Washington. We'll be back in a minute. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Discover matches all the cash back you earn on your credit card at the end of your first year automatically, with no limit on how much you can earn. It's amazing because of all the places where Discover is accepted. 99% of places in the U.S. that take credit cards. So, when it comes to Discover, get used to hearing yes more often. Learn more at discover.com slash match. 2021 Nielsen Report. Limitations apply. Hi, I'm Annabelle Gerwich. And I'm Laura House. And we're the hosts of Tiny Victories. My tiny victory is that I sewed that button back on 
the day after it broke. We talk about that little thing that you did that's a big deal to you, but nobody else cares. Did you get that Guggenheim Genius Award? We don't want to hear from you. We want little bitty tiny victories. My tiny victory is a tattoo that I added onto this past weekend. Let's talk about it. My victory is that I'm one year cancer free, but my tiny victory is that I took all of the cushions off the couch, pounded them out, put them back, and it looks so great. So if you're like us and you want to celebrate the tiny achievements of ordinary people, listen to Tiny Victories. It's on every Monday on Maximum Fun. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with the musician Kamasi Washington. He recorded the acclaimed solo albums The Epic and Heaven and Earth. He has also worked with people like Robert Glasper, Kendrick Lamar, and Thundercat. Let's get back into it. You played on Kendrick Lamar's album To Pimp a Butterfly. And I have to say, like, when I first heard that record, I thought, the thought that I had is like, a, as a big fan of hip hop and a big fan of jazz music, was like, oh, someone finally made it work for real. Like, there's plenty of hip hop records that sample jazz records and essentially transform them into hip hop music that are great. Um, and there's plenty of jazz music that's influenced by hip-hop music that's wonderful, um, and there's plenty of overlap and relationship between the two. But often I feel like that aesthetic disjuncture, that difference between them, is really hard to bridge. And when I heard that record, I was like, oh, this works perfectly. Yeah. Like, this is exactly right. Well, one, I mean, I think that there's a couple of things. I think that, like you said... I mean, hip-hop and jazz have always been kind of intertwined, but it was jazz was one, it was intertwined on the level of being a sample, and two, it was meant to be masked to not be jazz. You know, like Dre's putting jazz stuff in there, but it's he did it in a way that if you didn't know the record, you just wouldn't know that that's what that was. You know what I mean? It's like sometimes you hear those samples and it's like, damn, that's where that comes from. You know what I mean? Um... Kendrick took the approach of putting it in the forefront. Like, I'm not trying to take this jazz and turn it into hip-hop or funk. I'm I'm, I'm going to leave the jazz right there as as that. And I'm not sampling it. I'm going to get musicians to play it and create new music that feels like that, that I'm not, it's not in the background. And that was the big, to me, the major innovation that he did was like, I'm going to take this thing that's usually put in the background and masked to, 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 that, to the point where that if you don't really know, you won't even know it's there. You know, That's why a lot of people say, oh, it's the first time I've ever heard jazz with hip-hop. It's like, nah, come you hear jazz and hip-hop all the time. But it's not meant to feel like jazz. Kendrick is like, I'm going to make it feel like jazz. And he's such an artist that he can make it feel like it fits as well. Yeah. And it's kind of a community that you grew up in. I mean, you yeah. ended up on, when you ended up on this record, correct me if I'm wrong, but you didn't know Kendrick Lamar before you went in there. No, no. But you knew these guys that you had worked with making jazz records for, at this point, 15 years, maybe more. Oh, 20 years. <laughs> yeah. 20, 25. Yeah. And, and then we grew up, and we grew up in Lamar Park, like around, you know, Kamal Dudes, uh, you know, the world stage, and then right around the corner is Project Blow. And so we grew up, you know, really admiring, like, Freestyle Fellowship and, you know, Farside and all those guys. And they were, like, right around the corner from where we played jazz. Those are L.A. hip-hop groups that really 
led the way in uh, innovating the kind of possibilities of the aesthetics of rapping, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and they were totally into it. So it was like Horse Tapscott and Freestyle Fellowship were intertwined. In you know what I mean? It was like and for us, for those that were coming underneath them, you know, it was like they were the same thing. You know, so I think that, you know, Gang Kendrick coming from that, too. You know, he's coming from Compton, but he was, you know, he, he knew that scene. And, you know, people like Terrace and all those other guys, that whole scene, you know, it, it, it kind of did, like you said, it's like it, 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 Kendrick took it and put it and like, this is how this can really be, you know. And it takes bravery to do that, like to, you know. Let Terrace take a you know a real intense saxophone solo you know it's a second song third song of a really mainstream hip hop record takes courage you know I, I want to hear a little bit of my guest Kamasi Washington on Kendrick Lamar's album To Pimp a Butterfly this song is called You. I cry myself to sleep. Everything is your fault. Falls breaking to pieces. Earthquakes on every weekend. Because you shook as soon as you knew confinement was needed. I know your secrets. Don't let me tell them to the world about this shit you thinking. And then time to do this about the earl. I'm But I ain't as up as you. You just can't get right. I think your heart made a bulletproof. Should kill your slow time ago. When you started making your own records, did you already have an idea of what was going to be different and special about them? I mean, was it like something that you'd been saving up? <clears throat> yes, I mean, for me, um, when I started playing with Snoop, um, all of a sudden, you know, around that time period of my life, I started really gigging a lot. And I was, it was, I had a probably 60, 40, like 60% was non-jazz, 40% of what, what I was doing was jazz. And um, I'm right. We came back from a long snoop tour. Like maybe like we were out for like maybe like two months or something like that. And I was like, man, um, I have to start making my own music because I'm spending so much of my time making music for other people. I don't want to get lost. I don't want to lose myself. This is not. I didn't get into music for. Blue collar reason, reasons, like I, I, I really want to make great music, and so I, it's cool to make music for other people. But one, like, to not fall in a pitfall of trying to force in my own musical ideas into whatever you're doing, you know, so I can be a good professional musician. And that, like, I'm gonna give you what you want. I need to have my own outlet, you know. And so, like, you know, now it's around the time that people really started. The home studio became a real possibility. And so it was, at first, like a, I have to just maintain myself because I'm, you know, a bit in demand. And, like, I was playing with Snoop. I was playing with Lauren Hill. I was playing with Rafael Sadiq. I was playing with um, Stanley Clark and Shaka Khan and Gerald Wilson and all these different people. And it was like, I was like, a regular at LAX, you know, it was like, um, I just had to like have an outlet to be able to maintain like who I am. That's I make some music that is exactly the way that I want to do it 
and that way it, it was twofold. Like one, I can maintain myself and still like be able to, because I feel like if you're gonna make some music for someone else, you gotta make it for them and, and give them what they want, and not try to, you know, push their hand one way or the other. You know, so um, it started off as that, and then um, and I made a few records like just that, just basically like, well, here's what I sound like now. You know, I, I didn't really think of them as like something I was really trying to release it was just something I wanted to make you know um and then Lotus um asked me to make a record for Brain Feeder and that was the first time I really thought about like making the record that is like this is my album this is like what my contribution to music is not just like a functionary thing that's like I need to like document when I'm at and have some some place to be me this is like, okay, now make something that you will feel like is your contribution, you know? And that was the first time I had that thought. And for me then, it was like, well, I had to kind of figure out, like, who am I musically? Like, who am I? And, you know, I felt like I had the side of myself that was like a instrumentalist, you know, that played saxophone. And then I had the side of myself that's a composer that like made music. And so I was trying to make a record and I made the epic that really showcased both of those two sides of who I am. And then the third component was just, well, what do you think about the world? You know? And so that's kind of like where I've been with my records, just trying to show who I am musically and who I am beyond music. Let's hear some music from my guest Kamasi Washington's album, The Epic from 2015. This song is called Misunderstanding. It's funny, you know, James Brown was famous for touring with two drummers. And the reason, and I, my mom had an old friend who used to play drums for James Brown, and he told me this once when I was a teenager, made me a big impact. He'd always tour, tour with two drummers so he could fire one whenever he wanted. <laughs> like, I gave him a buffer. Um, and when you did that tour, when you did the tour for the Epic, you had doubles of a lot of people in your, but you brought a big band. What... <laughs> I read an interview where you said, and I thought it was really fascinating, one of the reasons, for example, that you brought two drummers was that when you're in the rhythm section of a jazz band, the expectation is so powerful that you're holding it down, essentially, that by having two drummers, you gave your drummers the opportunity to have the breathing room to express themselves. And... That is such a that struck me as such a beautiful idea. I mean, an expensive idea for you because <laughs> you're the one writing the checks when your name's on the when your name's on the billboard or whatever, but uh, or on the marquee. But that's a really beautiful idea. Yeah, yeah, and it, it kind of happened on an accident. I mean, basically, what happened is we had a we had this. This is the time we were all touring. Like, so the same thing that happened to me happened to all my friends. Like, we got out of high school and. Everybody was in demand, and everybody's getting pulled in a million different directions. So we used to joke that, like, getting us all in the room together was like getting the planets to align, you know? 
And so we, I had this regular gig at this place called Fish Street Dicks. And so, you know, I would come off tour, and whenever I was off tour, I would, we would start back up playing at Fish Street Dicks. And so we were back, and we were supposed to play this one night, and um, the band was supposed to be uh, Cameron, Ronald Bruner, and uh, Thundercat. And all three of them canceled on me the day to get. And I gave him a hard time. I was like, you know, this is bull. Like, how you gonna cancel on me day up? Blah 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 blah. I, you know, even though I knew I could find somebody, I was just giving him a hard time. And so I ended up calling Miles Mosley, Brandon Coleman, and uh, Tony Austin. And somehow they all came together same day. You know, they, they all, both sets came. And when we played, everybody thought it was going to be chaos. But what ended up happening is that it was that, like, it freed someone, someone in those, in those positions had freedom, you know. And so, like, I felt like all those guys, all my friends in the rhythm, the rhythm section, probably my, my crew, always struggled between, like, wanting to just be creative and just be free and just make music and holding down their position in the rhythm section, you know? So, like, people like Miles, you know, he struggled, like, playing, like, a bass player because he wanted to almost play, like, a guitar slash cello, you know, keyboard. Like, he wanted to take crazy solos and do all this stuff and play high and, you know, do all these things. And so, so did Thundercat. But when you put them both together... What would happen is they were fine being in that position for a little while, but then they'd always want to go out. But they could just kind of switch back and forth. And so all of a sudden I was getting like more of the creativity and more of the solid. And I'm like, oh, this is kind of actually really, really dope. It was dope the very first time we did it. It was like, I was like, wow, that was really dope. And then... I just kept it, and now I'm addicted to it, and <laughs> it's hard to hard to go without it. You know, the same thing happened with Cameron and Brandon. It was like, all of a sudden, you know, the keyboard player, like, you don't have to be so worried about, like, playing the chord changes, because he's playing the chord changes, so I can, like, create some other kind of thing, you know. Like, Brandon could stop playing the chords and spend two minutes tinkering with his you know, his Moog synthesizer and, like, create a really cool sound, you know, because there's someone else, you know. And so it just, it added such a, a huge amount of creativity. But there is also the fact that, you know, drummers-wise, that, you know, guys are not always timely. So <laughs> one of these dudes would be at the gig on time. So it takes a little bit of the stress off. <laughs> I mean, you're also a man who's not afraid of a 20-person choir, so. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. You don't hear that many jazz records with the budgets they've got <laughs> bringing in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's um, you know, I, I've always been that way. I've always been the kind of person I like kind of bringing people together. Though. You know, like my house is always the hangout spot. When we're growing up, I'm always the one that's advocating for the after party. <laughs> like, let's all go here, everybody. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, yeah, I think that that's part of it, too, you know. And then, you know, it's, you know, as a composer, like, the more voices you have, it's like the more freedom you have. 
Well, Kamasi Washington, we're out of time, but uh, I could talk to you about this stuff for forever. I, I love your music. Thank you so much for coming on Bullseye. It was great to meet you. Oh, me. man, thanks for having me. Kamasi Washington from 2018. If you haven't heard his music, go seek out more of it now. 2015's The Epic is already a classic. It's almost three hours long and will not disappoint you. Kamasi has a handful of tour dates coming up all over North America this fall. Go to the Bullseye page at MaximumFun.org for dates and more info. Before we go, let's take a listen to one more track from Kamasi Washington, a classic from The Epic, Claire de Lune. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created out of the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California, where just the other night around 9.30 p.m., my recording was interrupted by the signature tinkle of an ice cream truck. And I'm not going to lie. I was not mad at it. I, I, I like to hear an ice cream truck anytime, even at 9.30 at night. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones, senior producer Kevin Ferguson, producer Jesus Ambrosio, production fellows at Maximum Fun are Richard Roby and Valerie Moffat. We get help from Casey O'Brien. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is by The Go Team. Thanks very much to them and to their label Memphis Industries for sharing it. You can keep up with the show on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. We post all our interviews there. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. NPR.